0: And that, my friends, is how America was made great once again. Breaking at this hour, Jimmy Sangenberger is currently at the crossroads of politics and economics. Radio broadcaster master, now the celeb on the web. He's the smarty of the party. He's in cahoots with the grassroots. Jimmy at the Crossroads brings you thought-provoking commentary, hard-hitting interviews, original satire, and the best bumper music known to man. Jimmy
1: at the Crossroads! gonna talk money gonna talk politics with all generations oh what a great mix i said gonna talk money gonna talk
2: politics
1: grateful all generations oh what a great mix i got jimmy and the Crossroads making sense out of nonsense People want answers, they want to understand, they come to the crossroads and Jimmy gives them the plan, I said, gonna talk money, gonna talk politics, Great for all generations, oh what a great mix, I got Jimmy at the crossroads, making sense out of nonsense, come on Jimmy, what you got?
3: Hello, my friends, and welcome to another edition of Jimmy at the Crossroads, making sense out of nonsense in partnership with the Washington Examiner and bringing you engaging, intelligent talk, saying style, day in and day out during the week. Thanks so much for joining us, being a part of the program, and another great day to talk with some fantastic guests. Such a pleasure and a privilege to be with you as always. Once again, I'm Jimmy Sangenberger. Follow me on Twitter at Sangcenter. That's saying with an E, not an A, Center on Twitter. You can also contact me via my personal website, jimmysangenberger.com. Remember, there's no A, there's no I, there's no U in Sangenberger. It's all E's all the time. Once you know that, Sangenberger is easy. So, different ways to get in touch. Also, by the way, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Jimmy at the Crossroads, if you have not done so already. And to like the Facebook page, Jimmy Sangenberger Media Personality. Both places are where you can catch live broadcasts, as well as standalone video excerpts, including interviews that we've done, commentaries from yours truly, and more. So be sure to do so if you haven't yet. Same thing with the Washington Examiner's YouTube channel and Facebook page, check out our partners. Speaking of the Washington Examiner, our first guest coming up in just a little while will be Michael Barone, senior political analyst at the Washington Examiner. Looking forward to talking with him, getting his thoughts on the politics of the day. And he's got some interesting insights. I mean, he is a mainstay at the Examiner. He's one of my favorite guys to interview. Looking forward to having that conversation in a little while. Then, more and more states are looking at mail-only voting, mail-ballot-only voting across the country. Well, there are three states that were really pioneers of this, Washington, Oregon, and Colorado, where I'm broadcasting from. Well, former Colorado Secretary of State Wayne Williams was instrumental in helping to make sure that there was a smooth rollout of mail-ballot-only voting. What does he make of the push by state after state to go ahead and move to mail ballot only voting, all mail elections, and is it something that can be done pretty speedily? What should states keep in mind? Going to be a fascinating discussion with an expert, somebody who really knows how to make this happen. He was Secretary of State for Colorado from 2015 through the very beginning of 2019. Unfortunately, he was unsuccessful in the 2018 election cycle. And then finally, how do we reach young people when it comes to engaging them on small government and capitalism, on free markets? How can we win over millennials and Generation Z to free market principles? Not just espousing them, but embracing them. We will talk with the Executive Vice President at the Foundation for Economic Education Richard Lorek about that exact topic and a new report, the year report that FEE came out with just in the past couple of months, a very interesting extensive report on how to engage young people especially and effectively use technology and other tools in this era, this new decade. Because it's so important that we win in the battle of ideas for those of us who are espousing limited government principles, and recognize the importance of free markets and individual liberty, especially now more than ever. When folks, we have some real reason to be distressed, in my view, about some of what the federal government is doing. We'll get to that in just a moment, but of course, wanna make sure you you're clear that Michael Barone's on the show, followed by Wayne Williams, former Colorado Secretary of State, as well as Richard Laurenck from FEE. So With that said, let's go to what I think is a fairly controversial position for the Trump administration to take, one that is distressing to me. We talked about this a few different times on the show this week. That is the Defense Production Act, a Korean War-era statute that I don't believe has ever been implemented until now under President Donald Trump. Now, this is distressing to me even more than I thought it would be. And that's because I didn't realize the extent to which the DPA would be used to micromanage production. Originally, I thought it was just, let's order companies to produce more masks. Let's order companies to manufacture ventilators, like they did with GM with that order on Friday. But no, it's a lot more intensive than that. Yesterday, there was a press conference of the Trump administration, and it cut four, We will see Jared Kushner, who I think has done a phenomenal job on Middle East policy. We'll get around to talking about Middle East affairs in the coming weeks. But he really has done a great job, an underrated job on the Middle East. Now, he was brought on board in the Trump administration, the task force, to express, uh, to, to support the effort in getting private sector companies involved in manufacturing these essential products, PPE that's needed for medical personnel across the country to do what they need to do, as well as to get certain products out to the public. For example, it looks likely that the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, will officially move forward with a requirement Uh, or with the recommendation, rather, that everybody in the country wears these protective masks. So if that's the case, you need a lot more masks to be produced, and there's been challenges with that. So the idea has been, let's get the private sector involved. And they've been stepping up. Private sector companies have been ramping up to the best of their ability production. Even General Motors was doing so with this company, Ventec, before... And after President Trump executed on this DPA order to GM on Friday of last week to produce ventilator. So Jared Kushner apparently has taken a different tact and is now involved in helping to implement the Defense Production Act. Take a listen here. Cut for Jared Kushner.
4: I'd like to just introduce Admiral Plovchik, who, uh, before coming to this, I guess still is, he's the Vice Director for Logistics for the Joint Staff. I got a call from one of the senators saying, well, why don't you put a great military person in charge of the logistics and the supply chain and the Defense Production Act? And I said, well, the President already did that. This is the best man that we have in the country for supplies and logistics. Uh, He joined the task force 13 days ago over at FEMA. And he's built a team, uh, really, at the direction of the Vice President. That includes uh, people from FEMA, OMB, the FDA, HHS, the White House, and from everywhere else. And what they've done over the last 13 days has been really extraordinary. We've done things that the government has never done before, quicker than they've ever done it before. And what we're seeing now is we found a lot of supplies in the country. Uh, we've been distributing them where we anticipate there will be needs and also trying to make sure that we're hitting places where there are needs. So uh, I can tell you the people in the in the task force, they're working day and night. You've got a lot of people in the government. Uh, we recognize the challenge that America faces right now. We, uh, we know what a lot of the people on the front lines are facing, the fear that they have that they want to have the supplies they need. And our goal is to work as hard as we can to make sure that we don't let them down.
2: On the data front. This is almost unprecedented. This is a commercial supply chain with six to seven major uh, distributors of health equipment. We brought them all in. And we said we we need to make informed decisions. And we are going to help make informed allocation decisions. So within a matter of days, Feeding from their business systems, their enterprise resource like systems, I brought on board a tool, a supply chain tower, that the DoD was using to manage a supply chain for a very complex weapon system. Their data goes into a data lake. We have a tool to be able to use their data and see it. I can tell what product is coming in, what their orders are, what they're filling, what they're not filling and see the volume in the supply chain and understand what they're doing down to the county level. We're working to get it potentially down to the hospital level. So this 200 and some odd uh, N95 respirators, we, we took a look in there in the in the supply chain. We said, we, we can't, we have the volume to go do that. I called the distributor and they're making, they're making that happen. We anticipate as the hotspots around the country we anticipate these vendors at our direction helping them allocate product to the right place at the right time
3: here's my problem with this we have an admiral press conference announcing how he is going to be micromanaging not just orders saying hey companies produce these products, but also micromanaging all the aspects of the supply chain. Production of inputs into these products, decisions on how much will be made and where they will go, and all the little details here and there. And I am struck by the notion that in America today we are now going to be having individuals in government, including the U.S. military, controlling the means of production of these kinds of products. And I understand the need, but these companies are stepping up already, and I, I cannot fathom how encouraging them, providing support, providing some financing, fine. But micromanaging and taking over all the supply chain logistics and everything in these ways, very discouraging to me. We will talk about that more coming up later on the show as. Well, but I hope this is not a long-lasting policy. I don't believe that governments can effectively manage these kinds of things, and they shouldn't manage these kinds of things. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger. You're watching Jimmy at the Crossroads. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we will be joined by none other than, my friend, senior political analyst at the Washington Examiner, Michael Barone. Stay tuned. We are back here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. Yours truly, Jimmy Sangenberger here with you in partnership with our friends at the Washington Examiner from which I am very pleased to welcome for the first time to Jimmy at the Crossroads, senior political analyst at the Washington Examiner. I like to call him America's one man political almanac. Michael Barone joins us via Skype. Michael, my friend, how the heck are you doing? What's going on with
1: you? Well, I'm asymptomatic and I think uh, I'm in good health and uh, a uh, unidentified concealed location and uh, we're doing our best to self-isolate and to try to understand the world around us, which we're not supposed to engage with physically. So it's a new kind of challenge for me and for most Americans,
3: for most people around the world, but here we are. You are a historian, especially a political historian, in so many different areas, and I'm curious: have you ever seen anything like this in your memory, remotely similar to this, and what, or how far back would we have to go? Well, you
1: know, I can remember uh, the when polio was still a threat, and when. Uh, you know as a child that uh, the the mothers were all terrified that the kids would get polio over the summer they wouldn't let them go to public swimming pools Uh, a little girl down the block from uh, the neighborhood in detroit that i lived in as a child died of polio my age she could have been here now she lost 70 some years of life uh, as a result of that and they started testing the salk vaccine the next year so um that's not exactly like what we're dealing with now but that was a disease which uh, struck people seemingly at random struck children in particular and of course it had struck president roosevelt when he was a 39 year old grown man um so i have some vague memory of that but of course that was when i was uh, you know, we're talking about seven years old. I remember the kids a year below me were vaccinated with the soft vaccine as part of the national experiment. They were lined up in the hall of the public school and uh, given this shot at a time when most kids didn't like to have shots. And uh, so, and then I thought, gee, I wish I was in the experimental year. I'd like to be, uh protected against this disease but as it turned out never got it
3: so mike what do you think since you mentioned vaccinations and so forth with with some of the past diseases and viruses that we have dealt with what do you make of the debate we're seeing in america today over vaccinations particularly the idea of forced vaccinations but the the notion that Um, People are even resisting the idea of getting these vaccines that have provided so much benefit to countless people across the globe since we started really implementing them.
1: Well I think um, this episode, we don't know how long it'll last, we're dealing with this uh, coronavirus-COVID-19 uh, is going to take some of the wind out of the sails of the anti-vaccination camp. You know, it's, it's interesting if you look at the parts of the country, the counties where, uh, vaccine, non-vaccination of children is, uh, particularly high. It's very interesting. It's kind of the left wing of the country. Marin County, California, high income, high education area. Uh, the people that think that they're, uh, Really, so much smarter than the rest of us, have one of the highest anti-non-vaccination rates in the United States, and you know they're in danger of losing herd immunity against uh, childhood diseases, which can have uh, you know fatal effects and, and or long and also long-lasting negative effects. Uh, childhood diseases which were common when I was a child, which aren't anymore, um, and these people seem to want to bring that back. 1950s nostalgia, Um, you know, right now uh, we seem pretty confident as a society from all the commentary. I've seen that uh, we're going to find a vaccine for this uh, coronavirus. It's going to take a while and we have to make at least some steps, though, perhaps not as much as the. risk averse FDA for Food and Drug Administration might want to take to make sure that a vaccine is safe and so forth. You don't want to kill people with a vaccine uh, in any large, any significant number, but uh, you know, we have confident, but that's going to take uh, it would appear a certain amount of time. It's one of the many uh, questions that we don't know the answer to on this uh, on this, uh, this virus.
3: Michael Barone, our guest, senior political analyst at the Washington Examiner, joining us on Jimmy at the Crossroads in partnership with the Washington Examiner. Um, I want to talk about a couple of recent pieces that you've written for the Examiner, Michael, starting with one from last week. And I'm just going to read the headline because I think it encapsulates a big part of the discussion where we're hearing some on the left say, oh, my goodness, what we're seeing right now are examples of what maybe just maybe we should be implementing as far as addressing climate change, or at least it's telling us how to live our lives in a better way to reduce emissions and so forth. You titled the piece, Anti-Pandemic Rules are the Opposite of Climate Change Prevention. What do you mean by that, Michael Barone?
1: Well, the, uh, the kind of uh, ecological behaviors that have been encouraged, supposedly, Uh, reduce the chances of negative effects of climate change um, seem to be counterindicated by this virus reusable grocery bags which I've been using over the years I think they're handy if you remember to take them when you're going to the grocery store Um, but I also put mine in the washing machine periodically because they can get uh, you know food waste could fall in there and and mutate into something that's potentially poisonous Um, There's a problem, and now you see that uh, grocery stores, which had been encouraging uh, reusable bags, are now saying, "Uh uh-uh, we won't use them. You use those little plastic bags that you throw out and don't worry about the recycling um mass transit we've been told by people for years that we ought to live in higher density places in small apartments in areas that are very high density urban cores where we can walk to work supposedly that's better for the environment where we can take mass transit with hundreds of thousands of other people well if you looked at the coronavirus uh, rates that we've incidents that we've had in new york and the deaths that we've had in new york metropolitan area which is by far our densest metropolitan area um, it's very high and that this is that kind of urban concentration from a readily communicable disease point of view is very negative um, maybe it has some good long-term effects on the climate situation in the 2080s uh, but as far as the year 2020 is concerned um those that kind of packing people into tight narrow corners is not a good idea mm-hmm. um and so you know the the uh, uh the solutions which a, re- a threat a supposed threat of climate change a threat remote in time um has imposed on us seems to be almost exactly the opposite of what we need uh to protect ourselves from a communicable disease um which has been the kind of imminent uh you know physical threat to humankind through very much of recorded history and going back before recorded history
3: michael Baron, our guest senior political analyst at the washington examiner let's talk about china and how they have handled this uh, particularly in terms of trying to quelch the virus itself you wrote a piece was published a couple of days ago. Contrast between China and its neighbors shows communist regime's true character, contrasting it with Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore, and Hong Kong and how they have handled the COVID-19 crisis. What have you noticed about how they've gone about it and then also what it reveals about their character as countries?
1: Well, what you see and uh, what we've seen in Taiwan, South Korea, uh, Hong Kong, and Singapore, which are all countries which either have a very high ethnically or culturally similar to Chinese uh, population is the um, they have behaved in an orderly manner. They have followed rules. They have been ingenious about uh, figuring out uh, how to uh, manufacture new face masks. For example, face mask usage in East Asia, particularly in Japan, but also, in these other countries, historically, in recent times, it's been higher than the United States or Europe, but it's uh, the, 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 these uh, the sort of orderly rules-bound civilizations, uh, even with high degrees of physical density and urban density, uh, have managed to uh, contain this disease, um, so far as we can tell, to a much greater extent than just about any other countries. Uh, and they've done so with transparent, see a behavior of the citizens and of government and the contrast with china couldn't be more stark i mean china has clearly lied about this disease it concealed information that it was transmittable from human to human it has used its cat's paw the world health organization which seems to be pretty much run by china or in accordance with the dictates of the chinese communist government Um, to downplay the risk uh, that this is entailed. Uh, it's reporting out statistics now, zero um, deaths or incidents from this coronavirus, which is simply not credible um, in any way, shape or form. Uh, and uh, you know this is the country that unleashed this virus on the world through unsanitary uh, public uh, practices. Uh, has lied about it consistently Uh, and uh, the contrast with other countries is really stark. It reminds me, Don Rumsfeld, when he was Secretary of Defense, used to bring out, I think he still does, take uh, a photograph that he liked to show people, a photograph of the Korean Peninsula at night, taken sometime I think, in the 1990s. And what you see is a huge blaze of light in what is South Korea and uh, almost total blackness in North Korea, which is just living in such primitive conditions, and uh, Rumsfeld used this to illustrate the difference between a free society and a slave society, between a society of freedom, of democracy, of rule of law, and a society that had dictatorship uh, and totally arbitrary rule by a uh, family-run dictatorship. and. Um, we're seeing something like a contrast that that today between the behavior of the chinese communist regime the people's republic of china which has been lied and uh, pursued unhealthy practices and the neighboring countries coming from very similar almost identical culture where they're behaving very well and dealing with this in a transparent rule of law orderly uh, and uh, highly
3: intelligent and capable method of dealing with this crisis
1: shows the difference yeah. in regimes
3: absolutely and the quality of the regime very well put, michael barone our guest senior political analyst at the washington examiner let's come back to the home front we have an election cycle underway believe it or not the 2020 general election is basically inevitable between joe biden challenging president donald trump but We are seeing a virtual campaign right now, even as the Democratic primary technically, it's still going on. Anything could happen, I suppose, but how do you see this shaping up from a virtual primary standpoint? And then also in the next segment, we will talk with former Colorado Secretary of State Wayne Williams, who is one of the secretaries of state who oversaw the early implementation of vote by mail, vote only by mail programs. It was Washington and Oregon and then Colorado. The, the notion of implementing that kind of a program across all these different primaries that remain, maybe out into the general election across the country, what do you make of that too? How do you assess the political dynamics of where we're at? Because this is unusual.
1: Well, we're going to probably experiment with more uh, voting by mail around the country because um, the diff- you know the danger currently of gathering a large number of people in place uh, in one place at one time can increase the transmission of this potentially deadly virus. Uh, and In addition, if you've ever gone to the polls, and maybe you haven't, Jimmy, in Colorado, but uh, you'll see that the poll workers tend to be elderly people, the people that are most susceptible to grave uh, damage and, and death uh, from this virus. And so uh, it's interesting that you've uh, got heard a lot of protests uh, that the governor of Wisconsin, uh, Democrat, has uh, declined to uh, reschedule the election as, uh which is supposed to be next week, I believe, uh, as was done, for example, earlier in Ohio, and it's been rescheduled in many other states. Um, so I think we're gonna end up going to voting by mail. It has a potential, of course, of increasing uh, false voting, uh, the kind of ballot harvesting that we've seen in California, which, uh, um, you know the results just keep coming in and how many how many votes you got waiting out there well how many do you need um and uh the uh we we've, we've had uh i think it's going to be a problem we've just had the democratic national committee has decided to delay by i think it's five weeks when the democratic national convention is that's a pretty startling step because of course you know, the logistics for putting together a convention that has 4,000 delegates, 10,000 members of the press, thousands of other people there it are pretty major and been demanding for a city the size of Milwaukee, which the Democrats chose, which is not one of the largest cities in the country by hotel rooms and so forth. So, um, that's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be changing some of the practices uh, in our country and, uh, which will cause some problems. But, uh, I think that we're simply going to have to go that route. Um, you know, will we have, you know, I've been going up into every democratic national convention since 1968, which is uh, 52 years ago. I'm not at all sure. I'm going to be going to the next one, given, uh, my age and the, uh, kind of crowd gathering, uh, you know, the kind of crowd that will be there at that time. Uh, that, that's a that's a, that's,
3: that's a. sad thing to consider too, given how long you've been attending uh, those events. Well,
1: this it's it got it had to, it's a string yeah. that had to come to an end at yeah, some, some point, point. Yes, in it, it, time. It, but, so. well,
3: Michael, what about the campaign virtual campaign dynamics? We just got a couple of minutes left with you, but uh, the the idea now that the candidates are campaigning on a virtual platform. A, a, Joe Biden's got a podcast called "Here's the Deal." Uh, President Trump, of course, is doing his press briefings, which the media is saying is basically his new MAGA rallies and and so forth. How do you assess how this campaign may pan out, moving closer and closer to November, especially if this thing with coronavirus drags on long?
1: Well, we, you know, one of the things that uh, we were always told in this presidential delegate selection, but it's important to have Iowa, and New Hampshire, where voters could meet the, you know. Candidates can meet the actual voters. Voters can meet the candidates, interact with them. Uh, what we've seen is that the results this year, the Democratic primaries and caucuses in Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, have not been followed through. We're not getting Pete Buttigieg. is not one of the candidates uh, that remained in the race uh, at this point. And uh, Bernie Sanders is absent, a collapse of some sort by Joe Biden, not going to win uh, the Democratic nomination. Um, But, you you know, the days of big crowds going, uh, that's going to be less of a thing of the past. Uh, Campaigning has always adapted in American politics. You go back to the 1830s, Andrew Jackson, to um, the, you know, the media, the communications media of the day. Uh, You know, the American Revolution was uh, conducted, the arguments for it were largely conducted in pamphlets. That were circulated out with uh, uh, pseudonyms for the writers. Um, we've adapted over time, to communicating uh, political ideas in a variety of ways, and I think this is going to accelerate uh, a stand to something else. I mean, the, the National Convention is not what it once was it was once a, a unique communications medium the only place where politicians of one party could get together nationally and really talk and negotiate with each other in a way that simply wasn't possible before you had long distance telephone as the standard means of communication uh you know it's uh, they have been kind of charades ever since that are put together to make a nice television show um and so we're gonna we we're, we're moving on and we may have more in the nature of a virtual uh national convention and stop pretending that it's really a gathering of people that are making decisions but that remains to be seen and we you know will the 77 year old joe biden who hold up through convention time well we shall see i was kind of astonished that his people put out these uh, rather low-quality videos that he produced uh, from the basement of his house in Wilmington, Um, I would have thought any competent political consultant would say, you know what, we need another couple takes before we go put this uh, uh, online and let everybody in the country see it. But uh, perhaps I'm just not on to the latest, uh, uh, latest techniques.
3: Well, indeed, it is, uh, it is a quite a world to be in a time of political change in a way that nobody was expecting, certainly not this rapidly. Of course, Michael Barone is the co-author of The Almanac of American Politics and Senior Political Analyst at the Washington Examiner, with which I am now proud to partner for Jimmy at the Crossroads. Michael, I think I've been interviewing you. I don't know, since 2012 or 2013 is the first time I had you on my talk radio programs in in Denver. And man, how time has slowed. Yeah,
1: Jimmy, that was the time when you were violating the child
3: labor laws. <laughs> Some would that. say I still am, but uh, no, that's exa- exactly right. I mean, what I was—I was, I was uh, 20 when I first started getting into AM talk radio, which is which is striking. But I'm so thrilled to be partnered up with the Washington Examiner on this exciting project, and especially since you know I've I've been following you closely for years, and uh, uh, to, to have you on in this capacity is a real treat. So thank you.
1: Well, thank you. It's been a treat being with you. So take care and uh, happy to have you join the Washington Examiner team.
3: Thank you very much, Michael Barone. Joining us from an undisclosed location and best wishes to you. Stay healthy, stay safe, my friend. Thank you. All right, we're going to take a break here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. Always love talking with Michael Barone. Again, senior political analyst at the Washington Examiner. Just one of the most brilliant guys and the knowledge that he's got is just so extensive, that's why I like to call him the one-man political almanac. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger. You're watching Jimmy at the Crossroads, again, in partnership with the Washington Examiner. When we come back from the break, we will be joined by Wayne Williams, former Secretary of State for Colorado, which is one of the early states to pioneer the idea of male-only voting. So keep it right here. Jimmy at the Crossroads, don't go anywhere. Let's welcome back Mr. Jimmy murder back on the crossroads. Welcome back to Jimmy at the Crossroads. Great to be with you. Great to converse with Michael Barone, who's always been one of my favorite guests, getting his insights on politics and more as we continue on the program in partnership with the Washington Examiner. So great to be with you. Thanks for joining us being a part of the program. So more and more now, we are seeing states that are still in the primary process and states that are looking ahead out to the general election. Consider mail-in only voting. Now this is something that the states of Washington and Oregon and then Colorado were pioneering in how to do straight mail ballot voting. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't some polling centers and people can show up to vote in person. You can drop off your mail-in ballot into a drop-off slot and so forth. But the idea is that everybody gets a ballot mailed to their home to begin this process. But how wise is it, especially in the midst of this crisis, to try to scramble and put together mail-ballot-only systems for web 3 talk in primaries that remain, or looking out into the general election in November. What issues still remain for mail-in voting? For answers, I am very pleased to welcome my friend and the former Secretary of State for the great state of Colorado, Mr. Wayne Williams joins us here on Jimmy at the Crossroads, someone who was Secretary of State from 2015 through the beginning of 2019. did a fine job, I must say. Wayne, sir, welcome.
5: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on, Jimmy.
3: Thank you. So we're having a little bit of visual issues with you for some reason. I'm seeing that we're getting this uh, green stripe at the bottom and a little bit of a lag. But we'll see if we can w- work through it. Uh, that's some sometimes how things go when you're doing a, you know, an on, on-screen conversation. But uh, I, I appreciate you joining us. How are you doing? Are you healthy? Well, how's your family amidst all this?
5: We are, we are doing just fine. Sorry about that phone in the background. No uh, No, everything's going well. Uh, we're working hard for the city of Colorado Springs and my wife for El Paso County to try and make sure we take appropriate uh, steps uh, as we combat the COVID-19 virus here in El Paso County,
1: Colorado.
3: So Secretary, former Secretary of State Wayne Williams, Colorado was one of the early states to implement the vote-by-mail and vote-only-by-mail kind of process. Uh, I'm curious, how did that come about? And when, what was the timeline? How did that unfold? Give us a little bit of history here. Sure. Uh,
5: So first, just to clarify, in Colorado, everyone's mailed a ballot, but we also have vote centers so you can vote in person for an extended period as well. There's a couple ways it came to pass in Colorado, and two of the important ones are actually constitutional provisions. So Colorado Colorado gives much more power to the people than many other states do. Uh, That's manifested in two ways. Number one, and this has been true for a very long time, we have an initiative process where citizens can put things on the ballot themselves. Uh, That means that we sometimes have ballot issues that deal with uh, a cigarette tax or the legalization of marijuana or uh, the way bears or wolves are hunted or various other things like that. And then in 1992, Colorado made its citizens essentially the financial decision makers. And so every tax increase, every debt issue must go to a vote of the people. Well, when we're asking you as a voter to analyze complex financial transactions, shall taxes be increased to do the following thing, things, how the school district go into debt to build the following three schools, people wanted time to look at that. And so we went in stages. And first we had no excuse to absentee voting, which means that anybody that wanted to could ask for a ballot. And then the next phase was you could do that permanently. You could be what we called a permanent mail-in voter. That percentage kept increasing over the years. And so by the time 2013 rolled around, over 70% of the state had said, just go ahead and mail me a ballot all the time. And so that's kind of the background and it took uh, more than a decade for that transition to take place.
3: Wayne William Williams, former Colorado Secretary of State. We're gonna call you right back and see if we can up this uh, uh, video quality just a tad here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. So Nathan Matouche, our producer extraordinaire, working the Matouche magic today, as always. So as Secretary Williams, who again was Secretary of State of Colorado from 2015 to 2019, was pointing out, Colorado over time took a while to develop this, to get more and more people preferring ballots by mail, and so forth, because once, once you finally got to a point where enough people were saying we want to do this, then it kind of makes sense to make that switch. What I'm curious about is those states in which there hasn't been this clamoring, where they haven't done much mail-in ballots, and then suddenly you go to try and uh, move forward with a mail-in ballot system. And, and that's what you just keep going for. So I, I think that, that the time needed here is important to keep in mind. It is important to recognize that it's not something that can just happen overnight. There is a time frame that, uh, uh, that is needed. Now, it's interesting too because there have been concerns about voter fraud, there have been concerns about a variety of issues. Let's go ahead and give them a phone call. Uh, and, and so the question that a lot of people should be evaluating when they're looking at vote by mail is how, do you want to go about that? What is it that we want to do in order to protect the integrity of the election process, in order to make sure that people have confidence in it, and to roll out this process as speedily as we can? And that, that's really the essence of the question here, isn't it? Where you have to make sure that while you're rolling it out, the technology is there, the infrastructure's there, The follow up is there, all of those different aspects. And so uh, it is very striking to consider uh, how a lot of these different States are now taking a look at it. So I think we have Secretary Williams on the phone now. Wayne Williams, can you hear me? Are you there?
5: I am, and I hear you very well. Thank you.
3: Excellent. All right. Thank you, sir. So uh, what I was just talking about was that uh, stressing the point that. there was a lag time in implementing this; that it didn't just happen overnight. You had to have this groundswell build up o- up over time until you got to the point where the state was ready to implement something like this. So, uh, what, what does that tell you about how this is uh, about the the time frame it may need? It may be that may be needed, excuse me, for these states to address this issue.
5: So let me walk through some of the challenges you have. So first, you need a signature database that's accurate. uh, Because in order for a mail ballot to be legitimate, you must compare the signatures on the mail ballot to the signatures on file. If you've not maintained a current database of signatures, that's a very difficult process. Uh, And so that is one of the steps you'd need to take. Uh, Other things you'd need to take, you would need to make sure that you have a um, a statewide database and programming so that you can ensure that no one's voting more than once. In a traditional polling place election, that's fairly easy to do because you've got one place you can vote and as you come in, your name is crossed off the list. Uh, That is Having that database so that you can process mail ballots in a reasonable fashion and compare it and know whether the person's turned in the ballot already is absolutely critical. Um, It's a different process. That means you need to do training for judges and election officials. You also need significantly larger facilities to count ballots. Uh, And so that's just from a physical standpoint, one of the steps you have to do. You also have to have law regulations and necessary forms and procedures. Now, steps states coming in later have the advantage of being able to look at Colorado and other states and say what worked, what didn't work. For example, our initial mail ballot law had fixes in legislation for the next six years afterwards to address issues that were in it. There's two challenges, Jimmy, though, that are significant that the others I just named can all be done if you throw enough money and enough time and enough effort. But there's two of them that may not be able to be. The first is some state constitutions may have specific ways in which a ballot must be conducted. If it's in this state constitution, the ability to change that is typically very limited and can't be done midstream. You can usually call a special session. If it's a law, there's usually an emergency regulation process, but changing a state constitution is difficult. The other one that affects everyone, there are vendor product chain challenges. Uh, Vendors simply don't have the equipment in place to print and send mail ballots to the whole country. I've talked with some of uh, the folks who are in the printing of ballots process, and while they're delighted to have the additional business, they have certain limits on capacity. Um, And and that's because you buy these large printing machines for envelopes and other things. The insertion process, uh, you've got to make sure you send the right ballot to everyone since the ballot varies based on where you live. Um, And so in order to accomplish that, they have sophisticated equipment and they don't buy eight times the equipment they need And so there may be, and frankly there are, because I've talked to some of the printers, some supply chain issues that may cause a race to see who gets the remaining capacity. Uh, And states that don't act quickly may not have a vendor that can actually do what needs to be done in time for the November election. That's less of an issue with a primary, although you have less lead time, uh, because the primaries are staggered at various times. Uh, but a general election in which every single state in the nation is voting at the same time makes it challenging if you're trying to mail out several hundred million ballots at the same time. Now, you could adjust some of that by staggering uh, times, and some states could say, we're going to close our process earlier and allow the ballots to be printed a month or two in advance, Uh, but a lot of times Ballot certifications in various states don't work that way. So those are some of the challenges that you have um, with respect to trying to immediately move everyone in the country uh, to a process that Colorado did over more than a decade.
3: Yeah, that's the the as I'm hearing you explain all the things that we went through here in Colorado. Former Secretary of State Wim William Williams to implement this and to even bring about the possibility for it, I don't see how practical it is for most states to be able to move full speed ahead with this. I mean, could they look at, or should they maybe look at more of a hybrid system to try to get as much mail balloting as they possibly can, uh, particularly to those who are older, may have pre-existing health issues, those kinds of things? Or is that a big challenge in and of itself to try to micro-target more particular voters who may be uh, more at risk of contracting this virus if they're out in public trying to vote?
5: So, Jimmy, a number of states already have no excuse absentee balloting um that's true for most of the west uh interesting point uh even under you know a few years ago before california made the changes it's making um uh, california still had more mail ballot voters than colorado even though we were an all-male state in terms of everyone getting sent a ballot because more people had opted in for mail ballots in california they got a bigger universe so Making it so that those states that have really tight restrictions on absentee ballots, uh, making it so that they can move to more of a no excuse absentee balloting is absolutely appropriate. Um, and, and you've got to have uh, processes in place to handle that, but that's an easier move than trying to mail everyone in the state a ballot. Uh, and. and particularly uh, for states that have really tight restrictions on it, recognizing that individuals who who are at risk may be totally healthy now, but it's not appropriate for someone who is, it's not appropriate for the state to require someone who's 75 to come just because they're not sick now. And so having a process for that individual to be able to cast their ballot uh, via a secure process that's verified, that's audited, that has all of the checks in place, is absolutely appropriate.
3: What are you noticing still at this point, William Williams, again, former Colorado Secretary of State, our guest here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. What are you noticing that is still outstanding as far as issues that need to be resolved for mail-in balloting from a system like Colorado has implemented I would say with, for some, surpri- to some it's surprising, but uh, pretty successful results.
5: So you're asking what Colorado still needs to do?
3: Yeah, Colorado and states that have vote-by-mailer, mail are there any issues that still need to be mitigated, other than, you know, maybe replacing the Secretary of State, but I didn't say that.
5: There are some minor things that need to be done. Uh, so, and... Let me outline two of those. Uh, We did have one of the fixes proposed with respect to uh, the all mail system in Colorado. There are some individuals who, because of the situation in the home, do not want a ballot mailed to them because of the fear of coercion, either from home, from colleagues, from uh, various other sources. And so those individuals ought to have the ability to say, Please don't mail me a ballot. I want to vote in person so that I am not intimidated or coerced in my vote. So that's one change that needs to be made. Second change that needs to be made in Colorado, we had a requirement, unlike Washington, Oregon, that did much more of a a more full mail ballot system. Colorado kept both a mail ballot and a vote in person system. Um, the way that's structured uh, results in times at which you have election judges sitting for days at a time with no one coming in. Um, and so, you know, if you've got a mail ballot in your hand, your need to go into a vote center and vote is pretty small um, for the extended period of time. Now, Colorado just fixed part of that issue, um, but they are still requiring. Uh, Some counties, some places to be open in which no one is choosing to vote. And I think it makes more sense to focus our resources at the times and places that people want to vote. Um, So those are two changes I would make, but the system in Colorado works well. We have that database. We check every single signature to make sure it matches the signature on file. Uh, We have a process for cure. Uh, If it doesn't, uh, it's a good system. When I was clerk and recorder in the state's largest county, my daughter got a letter sent to her by me telling her that her signature did not match. Um, So that process works. When she'd gotten her driver's license, she was very proud and it has all of the letters. And by the time she was a college student, it was a scrawl. And so you have to have that database that you use to check signatures. Otherwise, you don't have a valid election.
3: So former Colorado Secretary of State William Williams, one thing when I'm watching this um, discussion go on around the country about the urgency of shifting to mail-in ballots, I worry that in the speed of it all, that the integrity of the election can be lost if there are states that say, we just need to do this. And so that that's a big concern for me there was a lot of legwork done to make this happen impossible in colorado and even then as you're describing there's still a little bit of uh there, there's still some issues remaining so what advice would you give to those states that are looking at this seriously given the climate and then also um if you could mix into that because we're about out of time i'm curious amidst all the social distancing rules and coronavirus and so forth your thoughts on the idea of mobile voting as well on your phone uh <laughs>
5: so first, if you're a state that's looking at it, you really try to make sure that people have the opportunity to vote safely, but you've also got to make sure that the election has integrity, uh, looking at adding risk-limiting audits, look, look at looking at uh, the processes you have in place to ensure that the people who are voting are legitimately able to do so. Um, And so for some states, that may mean more of an incremental approach, uh, targeting those individuals who really need to be more cautious with respect to their interactions with other people. Jimmy, it's also an issue, by the way, not just with the voters. Many of our wonderful election judges are senior citizens. And so that means you've got to make sure they're protected in the process as well um and so it's not just the voters it's also all of the wonderful precinct workers across this country that you've got to figure out how to protect um so with respect to mobile voting uh, if you're talking about doing it on an electronic device we have not yet created anything that is unhackable Uh, and i am very wary of anything that does not have a voter verifiable paper record uh, that is the gold standard in integrity. If you do not have an ability to actually have uh, a printout from that, there is a risk. And, and we've seen that, right? It's not just you know, the little mom and pop shop that gets hacked. There are large corporations across the country who are periodically sending out announcements and notices that, hey, our system has been compromised. Um, To think that you can stand up something in a couple months that could withstand the hackers that are out there. And we're not just talking about people trying to make some money. We're talking about nation states that in some cases may take specific adverse actions to impact the integrity of American elections. That means you can't move at the present time to a mobile app system. Banks allow a certain amount of fraud. Uh, They plan for it, just like a retailer plans on a certain amount of loss. But you can't have that in elections. You have elections decided by a single vote. Uh, We've had those here in Colorado. Our current governor was elected to his first statewide office by somewhere less than, I think it was either just under or just over 100 votes. So in a state, And so every vote does matter. You got to make sure that you have a process that is fair, accurate, that allows people to vote, but also protects the integrity of the election.
3: All right. Wayne Williams, former Secretary of State for Colorado. Always great to talk with you, my friend. Thanks so much for sharing your insights today on Jimmy at the Crossroads. And stay well, stay healthy, and my best to you and your family.
5: You as well, sir. Thanks. Sorry about the video issues. We'll try to do better next time, Hey, my you know,
3: that's what happens sometimes when you're talking live streaming. Thanks again to Wayne Williams, Bye. Secretary of State, formerly for Colorado. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Richard Laurenk from the Foundation for Economic Education on you know, educating young people about what it means to be free in a society and espouse free markets and why that is so crucial and important. We're going to talk about that and a new report that FEE just came out with in the last couple of months, the year report. Stay with us. Don't go anywhere. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger in partnership with the Washington Examiner here on Jimmy at the Crossroads.
2: Let's welcome back to the set, Mr. sang Style himself, Jimmy Zegenberger.
3: Rocking and rolling back on Jimmy at the Crossroads on this Friday. It's a feel-good kind of Friday. Despite everything going on, we're having fun here on the show. April 3rd. Thanks for joining us, being a part of the program. You heard his voice, and you've seen him work his matouche. Magic Nathan Matouche producing today, as always, here on Jimmy at the Crossroads once again, in partnership with the Washington Examiner. What a great conversation we had last segment. Tech issues notwithstanding, they still pop up here and there, with former Colorado Secretary of State Wayne Williams. He has a lot of insights, which I was so pleased to get, on How states should be considering, if they if they are considering, how they should consider going about implementing mail voting. It's a lot more complicated than I think many people give credit for. This is going to be a tough election year from a logistical standpoint. So enjoyed that conversation here on Jimmy at the Crossroads once again with Michael uh, with uh, Wayne Williams, and then before that we had Michael Barone on the show and he always provides really great insights on the political issues of the day. So here on Jimmy at the Crossroads, one of the things that I love talking about is the free market and the importance of individual liberty, unleashing the unlimited potential of each and every individual and doing so through less government and through individual initiative and giving people the room, the freedom to act, to think and to choose. And that includes voluntary economic exchanges. But how in this day and age do we educate young people, millennials and younger generation Z on the principles of the free market and why it's so important and valuable? There's an organization out there called the Foundation for Economic Education that does exactly that. And they have a brand new report, the year report, that is focusing on messaging and outreach to younger people in the free market. It is a very detailed report, and I am excited to have with me Executive Vice President at FEE, again, the Foundation for Economic Education, Richard Lorenk, join us on this Friday. Richard, sir, welcome to the show.
6: Thanks for having me, Jimmy. Happy Friday, and I really appreciate seeing your Yoda there. It's not exactly a baby Yoda, but I think it works.
3: Mind what you have learned. Save you it can. Help you it will. (laughs) My uh, attempt at, uh, you know, a little bit of Yoda there. So, Richard, how are you doing?
6: Doing great. We at FEE have moved uh, into working from home over the past three weeks. We're based in Atlanta, and so uh, we've been doing it quite well over the past three weeks. Pivoting our offline programs to mostly be online, which is uh, complementing all the videos and content that we have on fee.org every day.
3: So, when we talk about online, I mean, that already is where we've understood young people to be connecting so much with content. So, in some ways, the younger audience is probably very attuned to that anyway, but now you're ramping things up even more. You can't do those in person conversations in the same way. You can't do presentations at colleges universities and high schools as i know fee does and was doing in the school year and so forth so how do you think from just the technological side and then we'll specifically get to the report and some of the messaging components but how do you think those who are trying to advance conservative principles can effectively use technology during this stay-at-home time broadly speaking
6: sure i conservative and libertarian organizations i think have been in some ways ahead of the curve on using technology because we've had to we've had to make sure that our ability to spread the message around is very leveraged because as
3: for some reason richard's connection there is cutting in and out a little bit on skype we'll try one more time with the, with the video richard you're cutting in and out, so Nathan's going to call you back. We'll have Nathan call him back on the, on the video stream, see if we can work that up. So some days you just have tech issues that the gremlins are in the system, folks. But he's right. Conservatives and libertarians have really had to use technology in ways that the left hasn't been. Because they've had their monopolies on campuses. They've had most of the traditional mainstream media and so forth. I mean, these are all things that the left has been able to take advantage of and to utilize in ways that the right has not been able to. Because they've had those tools at their disposal, so conservative and libertarian organizations have indeed had to look online. So Richard, sorry about that. Please go ahead.
6: Yeah. We've been using social media with Twitter, with Facebook, with Instagram. We've grown a huge community on each of those platforms. And one of our big uh, goals over the past few years, you know, FIA is a 75-year-old organization next year, but we've pivoted to work with Gen Z and millennials. And so we've been looking to boost our numbers in, in those ways quite explicitly. And so Instagram tends to be one of those places where we have some of the best interaction with people we call unlike us, people who are just joining the conversation on the free market side for the very first time. So it's been working very well.
3: So tell us about the year report that you guys came out with. I mean, this is extensive. This nearly 200 page report that folks can access on your website for the Foundation for Economic Education. But what was the genesis of this and, and what is it about?
6: So if you've read it, uh, as it sounds like you have, you do know that it's almost 200 pages. And it basically collects the past three years of experience that Fia's had in actually looking to grow our audience. And not only grow our audience tactically, but also work and look inside ourselves to sort of examine what our Priors are, what our biases are when we're trying to communicate these messages with people who are maybe not as predisposed to thinking about the world in the way in which we do. And so the report contains case studies of various messaging tests that we've done, different models that we've employed, different types of videos that we've produced in order to get certain concepts communicated. You talked about occupational licensing, it seems like, in the last segment. Well, uh, one of the videos that we made to talk to people who may be a little more liberal, a little more progressive is on the very topic of uh, occupational licensing when it comes to hair braiding. And so what we did was we actually developed three of the same story, three videos of the same story about a woman who was just looking to start a business to braid hair in her community. And we talked to those the the idea of individual liberty and not being confined by occupational licensing in three different languages so that we could actually begin to bring people into the conversation without necessarily making them have to retreat back into their ideological bubble because we said something like free market or laissez-faire and that just totally turned them off. And so the report is chock full of examples that we've undertaken at FEE over the past three years, and I think it's really well looking, uh, good to look at, for people who are interested in actually expanding that bubble.
3: One of the things that has always been striking to me is I've done a lot of research on millennials and how conservatives and libertarians, anybody who's advocating for small government policies can make inroads with my generation and also with Generation Z. And the value of personalization, that is, what are the the personal experiences of the audiences that you're talking to? So if you're discussing a young person who is in their mid-20s and they're just out in the job market now, a very difficult job market today with coronavirus, but even before this viral pandemic started to take hold across the country, there were questions for some about, OK, I've got $40,000 in student loan debt. I'm struggling to find a job that fits my degree or what have you. I want this debt wiped away. Well, that means you have to have that personal story in, in context in your mind when you're trying to persuade them to say why student loan forgiveness is not the way to go, and we shouldn't just be providing free college. You have to take their personal experiences and bring that into your presentation of the, uh, of the topic you're discussing.
6: That's absolutely true, Jimmy, and I'm really happy you brought that up because one of the things we did from the very beginning in the YEAR project, and by the way, YEAR stands for Youth Education and Audience Research, so we ended up making that a nice, tidy tidy name there. But one of the very first things we did was market research, which is know your customer. That's the basic idea we interviewed 1500 people in online panels and we talked to them about everything from slogans that either work for them or don't work for them, but we also talked about their interests. And we found that there are five basic topics that people within that Gen Z or young millennial audience are really interested in talking about. And this was valuable to us because otherwise we at FEED could be talking about eminent domain abuse all day long, right? Um, So the five topics are income inequality, right? entrepreneurship and career development. They're looking to develop their careers and get a leg up. They're interested in the climate. That should be no surprise. And they're interested in the high cost of upper education, higher ed, and the high cost of medical care, health care. Those five things, we've really been able to hone a lot of our, our, our content, both in written and online with video form, to really speak to those concerns that people have, because they are interested in these things. You just have to look at Twitter to understand what people are getting in fights about, and they're mostly those things.
3: It's, it's interesting the list that you just described because those are exactly the same issues that I intuitively have been talking about. So when I've given speeches on how to win over and persuade millennials to conservative groups and so forth, I bring up particularly climate change and higher education costs because those are two of the key issues and you identified them, but there are others like the healthcare topic and income inequality that I could easily have intuitively done. And so it's always encouraging when there's data that an organization like FEE has put together that verify intuition on the part of just some millennial who is talking with other millennials and getting a sense on what are issues of concern to them.
6: Well, and I'm a millennial too, maybe a little bit on the older side of things, but an elder millennial Yes. What what I'm talking about with my friends might not be the same as what our target audience are talking about. So it's important to go out and ask. And that's really the genesis of the year project was that we didn't want to do guesswork marketing anymore. We were always sort of doing things by the gut. What do we think people are interested in talking about? What do we think they're interested in watching? And so we actually wanted to put a little bit of rigor behind it. And the goal of this whole project was not to have a silver bullet that says, all right, now I know how to make someone understand what free market economics is, but to develop and pioneer an approach that's methodical and actually gets to you to where you want to be. If you want to convert someone new or at least introduce them to the ideas, you have to take certain steps. You have to know them first. And that's one of the reasons we undertake undertook the project and one of the reasons we're so excited to promote this to the liberty movement outside of FEE.
3: So from the research that foundation for economic education conducted with the year project you've identified the five key topics what have you noticed are the most integral components to a messaging strategy and i don't just mean using technology and how you use it or videos or that kind of thing but in terms of the way in which you take the personalized story and present it in context and also the language that is used I mean, what is the way to hit that emotional cord that is so important you know i, I like to say uh, ben shapiro says that facts don't care about your feelings, which is true, facts don't care about your feelings, but at the same time, feelings don't care about your facts. You can yeah. try to reassure somebody with facts that contradict the way that they're feeling. You cannot ignore the two. They're not mutually exclusive. They have to go together.
6: I'll answer your, your first question uh, second, but to answer your question or to kind of opine on the uh, sure. the feelings part, have you heard of Jonathan Haidt? He wrote a yes. book many years ago called The Righteous Mind, and he's done a lot of work around this notion of moral foundations. And one of the areas in which he's he's worked is is called the moral taste buds. And when we were looking to identify a model that we could potentially employ in this project, his was one that we said, could we potentially adapt this to testing? And in the end, we, we didn't, but it's that idea. It's the idea that people have certain feelings and priors and biases that you really have to uh understand and play into if you're ever going to communicate with them and i think communication is the number one challenge that humanity has i think 90 percent of the world's problems could be ascribed to poor communication or miscommunication and so that was the real idea behind this project how could we use science use a methodical approach to actually find out how to communicate with people now when it comes to the actual approach well first you have to know your customer So you need to have that knowledge from the very beginning. You can't just make a product and expect people are going to like it. You can't make a product and then say, well, how am I going to be able to change this product to actually suit the needs of my target audience? You have to know the target audience from the very beginning, understand them as much as you possibly can, get feedback, stress test it, do sanity checks. And then, only then, do you begin to actually write the thing. You actually begin to produce the thing. Of course, the tactics of getting it out there, distribution, that's huge too. You need to understand if Facebook is a viable place to talk to millennials and Gen Z. We started advertising on Facebook at first and then found that most folks who were in our target audience actually just use it for the messenger ability, and so actually advertising video or written content on Facebook might not necessarily be the best thing if you're looking to talk Mm -hmm. to that group of people, but Instagram and Twitter could be. We're actually planning to experiment with TikTok as well, which is something that we've never really done at fee, and so I think you really need to begin with knowing your customer as much as possible. Do not start developing something until you have a good idea of what they want what their pain points are, what they're looking to solve in their lives. Because uh, because otherwise, why would they be entry?
3: Again, Richard Laurent is our sure. guest, cutting in and out just a smidge there here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. He is executive vice president of the Foundation for Economic Education. I think we're getting him back here. Nathan, it looks like like we're okay. All right, so I wanna talk for just a moment with you, Richard, about something that I have been struck by, and this has been a big component of my presentations I give on how to win over millennials and Generation Z, and it's that there's a myth out there, and it's a prominent myth, which is that millennials are socialists, and we have to persuade them away from socialism. But what I've contended uh, for quite a while now, is no, millennials are not socialists. In fact, they're a natural conservative or libertarian small government constituency. The thing is that they have had life experiences where they feel like they've been screwed over by the system, especially by capitalism. You look at the previous financial crisis we had in 2008, they attribute it to a collapse of capitalism, and they did just what they were supposed to do and in go into college, and they came out with Tens of thousands of dollars in student debt, didn't have any way to pay it off because they couldn't get a decent job. Again, attributed it to capitalism. They're told, oh, it was capitalism that created the crash, even though I'd contend it was not. It was government policies recklessly over years that resulted in it, but that's another story. What they were looking for is what is the fix? And they hear this alternative, this abstract notion of something called socialism. That is what we should be looking towards, they say but they don't really understand what it is, and they're just viewing it as that alternative when at the same time they love choice, they love opportunity, you look at the smartphones and the things that you've got there, they're not, millennials and Gen Z are not bred for socialism because you don't get choice in socialism and they just don't understand what it is, and that's where this kind of education in a personal way be incredibly valuable.
6: Totally. And speaking to the fact that you mentioned that millennials don't understand socialism, when Bernie Sanders is on a platform talking about democratic socialism, what he's really talking about is welfare statism. It really is just increasing the power of the state to provide benefits to individuals. And that's very different from the state owning the means of production. And I think you're totally right that millennials and Gen Z are naturally predisposed against something centrally planned like that. And so I don't think socialism is been well defined out in the public discourse, and I think if Bernie Sanders were actually defining it uh, properly, he would probably be hurt by that, so that's why he hasn't. The other thing is that I think this moment right now is very similar to the 2008-2009 recession, in that this is a moment where people are seeking actively for a worldview that they can uh, put to themselves for their entire lives. And so I think very similarly to how the 2008 recession caused a lot of people to begin questioning capitalism, rightly or wrongly, I think now people are looking for worldview, not only because they're bored, but because they want to understand how it is all of a sudden when all the restaurants and all the schools and all the businesses are closed, we have 5% unemployment practically overnight. And so they're seeking. This is why I think it's so important that we don't take our foot off the gas. Every organization that's looking to talk with millennials and Gen Z needs to be working harder than ever right now to make the case persuasively for free market capitalism.
3: Oh, absolutely! And one of the case studies that you talk about, uh, the, the, you and the team talk about in the fees in fees year report, is this notion of pitting Milton Friedman against Bernie Sanders, who you just mentioned. I'd love to tease that out for a moment.
6: This was one of my favorite projects and it actually in the end turned out to be one that um, maybe we didn't want to pursue as much as we would be originally inclined. And so what we did was my colleague, Sean Malone, who is our fabulous creative director at FEE, he and I came up with an idea to actually uh, bring old Milton Friedman lectures and play them against Bernie Sanders definition of democratic socialism that he had given back in 2016 and actually have Bernie say something and have Milton respond. And we called it Milton versus Bernie on democratic socialism. It tackled everything from uh, equal pay for equal work to taxes, to whether there are actually angels in government. As we know, government is made up of people just like you and me, and they all have incentives just like you and I do. And so we actually put these together and made a fabulous video that had over a million views in its first couple of days. And it was fabulous, we loved it, it was was red meat. But the problem was, and we write this in the report, that it wasn't really attracting many new people. We loved it, it made us feel great about what we knew to be true. Our audience, Fee's been around for 75 years next year, our audience loved it. And so do we continue making content like that? Not exactly but it definitely hit a a really good spot with the people who already believed. The Challenge is making good video and making good content for people who are still a little skeptical.
3: Yeah, that is certainly the challenge. And so in that regard, as we begin to wrap up with you here, Richard Laurenk, our guest, EVP, Executive Vice President of the Foundation for Economic Education. What have you noticed have been effective uses of video tools in particular? What are some of the things that Fee has done with success that maybe other conservative and libertarian organizations can learn from? Looks like Richard just cut out again here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. We'll try calling him back and bring him bring him back real quickly here. Uh, Nathan Matusz, just another video call here, working the Matouche magic, and I think. It is It is interesting and very salient to observe the point here that Richard just noted, which is that the conservative audience, the libertarian audience that fee has drawn in as supporters, very much like this. I love the idea of incorporating Milton Friedman in there. I think Milton Friedman is fantastic he eternally fantastic, of course he 's no longer with us. But at the same time, just because something is going to appeal to a conservative or libertarian audience doesn't mean that you're going to be able to connect with the people who are not already in the crowd. I mean, one of the big things I like, and this is one of the things that I think is so striking about this report, is we shouldn't just be preaching to the choir. We need to expand the choir. So we've got Richard Laurenk back. I was just asking you before, Richard, I don't know if you heard, but to elaborate on what types of video strategies have worked.
6: I would say uh, don't necessarily fall into the trap of shorter is better. If it's a good story, people will watch for uh, as long as you'd like to show them a very compelling story. But truly, I think the most compelling fact that we discovered was it matters how you talk to a story. Uh, not only what the topic is, but the actual language that you use. And so we employed a model called the Three Axis Model by Arnold Kling, and it basically separates political language into conservative, liberal, and libertarian. And so if you look at sort of each of these languages, the conservatives are are interested in a spectrum that really goes between uh, order and disorder. The progressives are interested in uh, talking about uh, people who are uh, uh, sort of without, versus the people who have and then libertarians are always interested in talking about of course liberty versus coercion and so when we talk in the liberal language we get a 370 percent bump in the amount of video that's watched by that audience and so if you truly know how to talk to your audience in the words they like using the oppressor versus the oppressed idea in the liberal context you're going to be able to make them watch as much as you want them to watch
3: that's fascinating i think a really critical point to Keep in mind. And one other thing, and I think this goes more for politicians, but at the same time, it can be a, a very much applicable to video content. And that is, there's this idea oh, I want to vote for a politician who I'd like to have a beer with. But I think the reverse or the inverse is true, Richard Loring, and that is that. People want to vote for a politician who they think would like to have a beer with them. They want to watch Mm. somebody talk about politics who they think would like to have a beer with them and listen to their issues and their concerns. And I think so many politicians and conservatives, broadly speaking, libertarians as well, are much more of the mold that we need to just express, here's the facts, here's the way things really are, and the personality is not as important. You, you need to keep in mind the importance of relational content.
6: If there's one thing I think I'd leave the audience listening with, it is that you must listen. Listen before you speak. Understand your audience, know your customer. That is the key to bringing new people into these ideas.
3: Richard Lawrence, Executive Vice President of the Foundation for Economic Education. Where can people go to learn more about you guys and also to access this year report?
6: I'm glad you asked, Jimmy, and thanks for having me. Our website is FEE.org, fee.org, and if you go to FEE.org forward slash year, you can get a free copy of this report. It's 200 pages, like you said, but well worth it if you're looking to talk to new audiences who are maybe a little unlike yourself.
3: Well, and I have to give credit to fee as well for not just keeping all this stuff proprietary, but you could have come out with a report and just said, "Oh, this is what our understanding is of young people and how to relate to them, but you really went into the detail on how to connect and what strategies are best online and so forth. So I, I think that's a, a service to everybody in the Liberty movement.
6: Thank you very much, Jimmy. It's one of our goals to be as open as possible
3: v.org. Check them out. Richard Laurent, Executive Vice President of the Foundation for Economic Education, joining us here on uh, Jimmy at the Crossroads. Be well, be safe, and be healthy, sir. Thank you, Jimmy. Thanks, everybody. All right. Um, just very interesting conversation and report to be sure. So, here on Jimmy at the Crossroads, we like to delve into a variety of different topics, talk about the news of the day, talk about what's happening, the ins and outs, how things are going. Uh, For a moment before we go, I want to go to a spat between President Trump and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. Senator Schumer yesterday sent President Trump a letter in which he called upon the president to significantly expand the Defense Production Act and its usage, which, earlier in the show, I expressed my deep, deep concerns about the Defense Production Act and its implementation, because it is out of step with the notion of the free market, not just because you are telling a company, hey, you need to make masks, not just because you're telling a company you need to make ventilators, but because, as we played in the beginning of the show, this clip, from the Admiral tasked with the logistical operations, we have the US government, led by an Admiral in part, overseeing the logistics, all the the micromanaging the production chain, which is particularly concerning to me. But so Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, President, uh, Vice President Biden, They have consistently been saying, President Trump, implement and expand the Defense Production Act. And that's exactly what Chuck Schumer put in this letter. And in part, he wrote that the Defense Production Act has been consistently used by my team and me for the purchase of billions of dollars worth of equipment, medical supplies, ventilators, and other related items. been powerful leverage, so on and so forth. He does this in number two. But then he gets to number three which is a senior military officer is in charge of purchasing, distributing, etc. He cites the, oh, oh excuse me, I'm looking at the wrong one. This is President Trump's letter. No wonder I was getting confused there. This is President Trump's letter to Chuck Schumer. Chuck Schumer in his original letter was going after President Trump and insisting upon the implementation of the Defense Production Act much more, saying that a military officer should be appointed and quote, given full authority under the Defense Production Act, (DPA) to complete and rapidly implement a plan for the increased production, procurement, and distribution of critically needed medical devices and equipment. President Trump rebutted that with some of the letter that I was actually reading before, where he was saying, yes, we have a senior military officer, the admiral, who, let's play the admiral for just a moment. I think this is, I think he got it there. Yes, we've got, we've got the admiral, whose last name, I, I just don't want to butcher, I keep, when I heard Jared Kushner say it yesterday, I was struck by the pronunciation because it doesn't sound like I think it should. Let's just play the admiral for a moment.
2: On the data front, This is almost unprecedented. This is a commercial supply chain with six to seven major uh, distributors of health equipment. We brought them all in and we said we we need to make informed decisions and we are going to help make informed allocation decisions. So within a matter of days feeding from their business systems, their enterprise resource like systems, I brought on board a tool, a supply chain tower that the DoD was using to manage a supply chain for a very complex weapon system. Their data goes into a data lake. We have a tool to be able to use their data and see it. I can tell what product is coming in. What okay, their so orders that's, that's
3: are. The Admiral Polowitz maybe, is as how you pronounce it. Um, he's in charge of all these different facets. Micromanaging the operations, which is what is discouraging to me, the idea of a U.S. government official and someone in the military, no less, micromanaging supply chains and production in all those different facets. That's troubling to me. But President Trump responded in the letter saying, look, we've actually got this guy already in place you just weren't paying attention in fact if you go to cut three here is president trump yesterday at his press conference addressing exactly that
0: so much is being done right now in terms of protective gear protective outfits a lot's being done it's going to be within six months it's going to be sold for the right price they got to stack up for the next time but we are doing that, and the Admiral's done a fantastic job. I, Senator Schumer wrote a letter today, and he says, you should put a military man in charge. I said, well, Chuck, if you knew a little bit more, we have one of the most highly respected people in the military, the Admiral, This is what he does, too, very professionally. And uh, he's in charge, but Chuck didn't know that.
3: But Chuck didn't know that. Well, here's Chuck Schumer. Responding negatively to President Trump's letter, which included this paragraph, quote, if you spent less time on your ridiculous impeachment hoax, which went haplessly on forever and ended up going nowhere except increasing my poll numbers, and instead focused on helping the people of New York, then New York would not have been so completely unprepared for the invisible enemy. No wonder AOC and others are thinking about running against you in the primary if they did." they would likely win. So let's play here, final cut of the day. Cut two. this is Chuck Schumer, Senate Minority Leader, responding to President Trump's letter on MSNBC last night.
0: Why was he so angry at you? What, What was this about? Well, let me give you a little background. I have heard for the last few weeks throughout New York and throughout America the desperate shortage of the kinds of things our frontline workers need whether it be masks or ventilators or PPE or anything else. And so about two weeks ago, I called the president and said, why don't you invoke the Defense Production Act? That's an act on the books from the Truman administration. And it says that the military can commandeer both manufacturing and distribution when there's a national emergency or a war. The president said he'd do it, and then three hours later, he said no. And now he hasn't done it. And we sort of have this patchwork where governors and mayors, my governor, my mayor, they're doing good jobs, but they're going around looking for ventilators, looking for masks. It's uncoordinated and it's a patchwork. So this morning I sent the president a letter and said, why don't you invoke the Defense Production Act and put in place a military person? somebody who knows command and control, someone who knows logistics, someone who knows uh, uh, quartermastering, to not only commandeer factories and supply chains to make the stuff that we need, desperately need, but also to distribute it in the places that are most needed so not the 50 governors will be hunting and pecking.
3: All right, and that's enough then for, uh, I, I Chuck said, Schumer. I mean, let's just, President Trump did, and in the letter he clarified, he did exactly what Schumer, was asking, Schumer said, appoint a senior and experienced military individual to the position of overseeing the logistical operations here, distribution, production, and so forth. Now, I don't want President Trump to have done that. I wish he did not. I don't like this approach of government commandeering the assets of the public and pri- uh, rather the private sector resources in this way. I don't think it is appropriate. And I think the companies are stepping up. Now, not perfectly. We saw, saw the news of GM, uh, excuse me, 3M come out yesterday. It is horrendous, but that doesn't justify this grandiose usurpation of the private sector in this way. But neither here nor there. President Trump did exactly what Chucky e. Schumer asked him to do. He did exactly what he asked him to do. And then in the letter that Schumer sent to Trump, he ignored that fact. He ignored or didn't know, as Trump said, that an admiral was already responsible for this. So it's a silly spat, but President Trump, you know, no holds barred pointing out fallacies and how Schumer really hasn't been paying attention. He's been rather clueless on this whole thing. You read the letter, and he just breaks down, boom, 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 four key things about how this operation to address coronavirus has been done in a way that addresses the concerns of Chuck Schumer. And then Schumer fires back, complains about the language used and so forth by the President of the United States in his letter to the Senate Minority Leader. And I just he can't make this stuff up in the middle of a crisis, when you have this kind of political sniping and the minority leader not paying attention to what's actually been going on. Kinda of crazy. The world. All right, that is it for us today here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. I hope you have a great weekend. Stay healthy, stay well, stay safe and sound. For those of you watching who are in the Denver, Colorado area, I will be broadcasting live on 710 KNUS tomorrow evening. From 5 to 8 p.m. And we will be back here on Jimmy at the Crossroads Monday. Be sure to tune in then. Working up a great show. We got A.B. Stoddard of Real Clear Politics on Monday and so much more throughout the course of the week as we find our footing at the Crossroads. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger in partnership with the Washington Examiner. Thank you. Once again, have a great weekend. And, of course, as always, may God bless the United States. America.